Section 6, Chapter 4 Of The Chimney Corner by Harriet Beecher Stowe This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Is Woman a Worker? Papa, do you see what the Evening Post says of your New Year's article on Reconstruction? said Jenny, as we were all sitting in the library after tea. I have not seen it. Well, then, the charming writer, whoever he is, takes up for us girls and women, and maintains that no work of any sort ought to be expected of us, that our only mission in life is to be beautiful, and to refresh and elevate the spirits of men by being so. If I get a husband, my mission is to be always becomingly dressed, to display most captivating toilettes, and to be always in good spirits, as, under the circumstances, I always should be, and thus renew his spirits when he comes in weary with the toils of life. Household cares are to be far from me. They destroy my cheerfulness and injure my beauty. He says that the New England standard of excellence as applied to woman has been a mistaken one, and in consequence, though the girls are beautiful, the matrons are faded, overworked, and uninteresting, and that such a state of society tends to immorality, because when wives are no longer charming, men are open to the temptation to desert their firesides and get into mischief generally. He seems particularly to complain of your calling ladies who do nothing the fascinating lazaronie of the parlor and boudoir. There was too much truth back of that arrow not to wound, said Theophilus Thoreau, who was sconced as usual in his dark corner, whence he supervises our discussions. Come, Mr. Thoreau, we won't have any of your bitter moralities, said Jenny. They are only to be taken as the invariable bay-leaf which Professor Blot introduces into all his recipes for soups and stews a little elegant bitterness to be kept tastefully in the background you see now papa i should like the vocation of being beautiful it would just suit me to wear point lace and jewelry and to have life revolve around me as some beautiful star and feel that i had nothing to do but shine and refresh the spirits of all gazers and that in this way i was truly useful and fulfilling the great end of my being but alas for this doctrine all women have not beauty the most of us can only hope not to be called ill-looking and when we get ourselves up with care to look fresh and trim and agreeable which fact interferes with the theory well for my part said young rudolph i go for the theory of the beautiful if ever i marry it is to find an asylum for ideality. I don't want to make a culinary marriage or a business partnership. I want a being whom I can keep in a sphere of poetry and beauty, out of the dust and grime of everyday life. Then, said Mr. Theophilus, you must either be a rich man in your own right, or your fair ideal must have a handsome fortune of her own. I will never marry a rich wife quoth Rudolph. My wife must be supported by me, not I by her. Rudolph is another of the habitués of our chimney corner, 
representing the order of young knighthood in America, and his dreams and fancies, if impracticable, are always of a kind to make everyone think him a good fellow. He who has no romantic dreams at twenty-one will be a horribly dry peascod at fifty. Therefore, it is that I gaze reverently at all Rudolph's chateaus in Spain, which want nothing to complete them except solid earth to stand on. And pray, said Theophilus, how long will it take a young lawyer or physician, starting with no heritage but his own brain, to create a sphere of poetry and beauty in which to keep his goddess? How much a year will be necessary, as the English say, to do this garden of Eden, whereinto shall enter only the poetry of life? I don't know. I haven't seen it near enough to consider. It is because I know the difficulty of its attainment that I have no present thoughts of marriage. Marriage is to me in the bluest of all blue distances, far off, mysterious, and dreamy, as the mountains of the moon or sources of the Nile. It can only come when I have secured a fortune that shall place my wife above all necessity of work or care. I desire to hear from you, said Theophilus, when you have found the sum that will keep a woman from care. I know of women now inhabiting palaces, waited on at every turn by servants, with carriages, horses, jewels, laces, cashmeres, enough for princesses, who are eaten up by care. One lies awake all night on account of a wrinkle in the waist of her dress. Another is dying because no silk of a certain inexpressible shade is to be found in New York. A third has had a dress sent home, which has proved such a failure that the like seems no longer worth having. If it were not for the consolations of religion, one doesn't know what would become of her. The fact is that care and labor are as much correlated to human existence as shadow is to light. There is no such thing as excluding them from any mortal lot. You may make a canary bird or a goldfish live in absolute contentment without a care or labor, but a human being you cannot. Human beings are restless and active in their very nature, and will do something, and that something will prove a care, a labor, and a fatigue. Arrange it how you will. As long as there is anything to be desired and not yet attained, so long its attainment will be attempted. So long as that attainment is doubtful or difficult, so long will there be care and anxiety. When boundless wealth releases woman from every family care, she immediately makes herself a new set of cares in another direction, and has just as many anxieties as the most toilful housekeeper, only they are of a different kind. Talk of labor, and look at the upper classes in London or in New York in the fashionable season. Do any women work harder? To rush from crowd to crowd all night, night after night, seeing what they are tired of, making the agreeable over an abyss of inward yawning, crowded, jostled, breathing hot air, and crushed in halls and stairways, without a moment of leisure, for months and months, until brain and nerve and sense reel, and the country is longed for as a period of resuscitation and relief. Such is the release from labor and fatigue brought by wealth. 
the only thing that makes all this labor at all endurable is that it is utterly and entirely useless and is no good to any one in creation this alone makes it genteel and distinguishes it from the vulgar toils of a housekeeper these delicate creatures who can go to three or four parties a night for three months would be utterly desolate if they had to watch one night in the sick-room and though they can exhibit any amount of physical endurance and vigor in crowding into assembly-rooms and breathe tainted air in an opera-house with the most martyr-like constancy they could not sit one half-hour in the close-room where the sister of a charity spends hours in consoling the sick or aged poor mr theophilus is quite at home now said jenny only start him on the track of fashionable life and he takes the course like a hound but here now our champion of the evening post the instinct of woman is to seek a life of repose their eagerness to attain the life of elegance does not mean contempt for labor but it is a confession of unfitness for labor women were not intended to work not because work is ignoble but because it is as disastrous to the beauty of a woman as it is friction to the bloom and softness of a flower woman is to be kept in the garden of life she is to rest to receive to praise she is to be kept from the workshop world where innocence is snatched with rude hands and softness is blistered into unsightliness or hardened into adamant no social truth is more in need of exposition and illustration than this one and above all the people of new england need to know it and better they need to believe it it is therefore with regret that we discover christopher crowfield applying so harshly and as we think so indiscriminately the theory of work to women and teaching a society made up of women sacrificed in the workshops of the state or to the dustpans and kitchens of the house that women must work ought to work and are dishonored if they do not work and that a woman committed to the drudgery of a household is more creditably employed than when she is charming fascinating irresistible in the parlor or boudoir the consequence of this fatal mistake is manifest throughout new england in new england where the girls are all beautiful and the wives and mothers faded disfigured and without charm or attractiveness the moment a girl marries in new england she is apt to become a drudge or lay figure on which to exhibit the latest fashions she never has beautiful hands and she would not have a beautiful face if a utilitarian society could apply her face to anything but the pleasure of the eye her hands lose their shape and softness after childhood and domestic drudgery destroys her beauty of form and softness and bloom of complexion after marriage to correct or rather to break up this despotism of household cares or of work over woman american society must be taught that women will inevitably fade and deteriorate unless it ensures repose and comfort to them it must be taught that reverence for beauty is the normal condition while the theory of work applied to woman is disastrous alike to beauty and morals work when it is destructive to men or women is forced and unjust all the great masculine or creative epochs have been distinguished by spontaneous work on the part of men 
and universal reverence and care for beauty the praise of work and sacrifice of women to this great heartless devil of work belong only to and are the social doctrine of a mechanical age and a utilitarian epoch and if the new england idea of social life continues to bear so cruelly on woman we shall have a reaction somewhat unexpected and shocking well now say what you will said rudolph you have expressed my idea of the conditions of the sex woman was not made to work she was made to be taken care of by man all that is severe and trying whether in study or in practical life is and ought to be in its very nature essentially the work of the male sex the value of woman is precisely the value of those priceless works of art for which we build museums which we shelter and guard as the world's choicest heritage and a lovely cultivated refined woman thus sheltered and guarded and developed has a worth that cannot be estimated by any gross material standard so i subscribe to the sentiments of miss jenny's friend without scruple the great trouble in settling all these society questions said i lies in the gold washing the cradling i think the miners call it if all the quartz were in one stratum and all the gold in another it would save us a vast deal of trouble in the ideas of jenny's friend of the evening post there is a line of truth and a line of falsehood so interwoven and threaded together that it is impossible wholly to assent or dissent so with your ideas rudolph there is a degree of truth in them but there is also a fallacy it is a truth that a woman as a sex ought not to do the hard work of the world either social intellectual or moral there are evidences in her physiology that this was not intended for her and our friend of the evening post is right in saying that any country will advance more rapidly in civilization and refinement where woman is thus sheltered and protected and i think furthermore that there is no country in the world where women are so much considered and cared for and sheltered in every walk of life as in america in england and france all over the continent of europe in fact the other sex are deferential to women only from some presumption of their social standing or from the fact of acquaintanceship but among strangers and under circumstances where no particular rank or position can be inferred a woman travelling in england or france is jostled and pushed to the wall and left to take her own chance precisely as if she were not a woman deference to delicacy and weakness the instinct of protection does not appear to characterize the masculine population of any other quarter of the world so much as that of america in france le monsieur will form a circle round the fire in the receiving-room of a railroad station and sit tranquilly smoking their cigars while ladies who do not happen to be of their acquaintance are standing shivering at the other side of the room in england if a lady is incautiously booked for an outside place on a coach in hope of seeing the scenery and the day turns out hopelessly rainy no gentleman in the coach below ever thinks of offering to change seats with her though it pour torrents in america the roughest backwood steamboat or canal-boat captain always as a matter of course considers himself charged with the protection of the ladies place aux dames is written in the heart of many a shaggy fellow 
who could not utter a French word in any more than could a buffalo. It is just as I have said before. Women are the recognized aristocracy, the only aristocracy of America, and so far from regarding this fact as objectionable, it is an unceasing source of pride in my country, that kind of knightly feeling towards woman which reverences her delicacy, her frailty, which protects and cares for her, is, I think, the crown of manhood, and without it a man is only a rough animal. But our fair aristocrats and their knightly defenders need to be cautioned, lest they lose their position, as many privileged orders have before done, by an arrogant and selfish use of power. I have said that the vices of aristocracy are more developed among women in America than among men, and that, while there are no men in the northern states who are not ashamed of living a merely idle life of pleasure, there are many women who make a boast of helplessness and ignorance in woman's family duties, which any man would be ashamed to make with regard to man's duties, as if such helplessness and ignorance were a grace and a charm. There are women who contentedly live on, year after year, a life of idleness, while the husband and father is straining every nerve, growing prematurely old and gray, abridged of almost every form of recreation or pleasure, all that he may keep them in a state of careless ease and festivity. It may be very fine, very generous, very knightly, in the man who thus toils at the oar that his princesses may enjoy their painted voyages, but what is it for the women? A woman is a moral being, an immortal soul before she is a woman, and as such she is charged by her maker with some share of the great burden of work which lies on the world. Self-denial, the bearing of the cross, are stated by Christ as indispensable conditions to the entrance into his kingdom, and no exception is made for man or woman. Some task, some burden, some cross, each one must carry and there must be something done in every true and worthy life, not as amusement, but as duty, not as play, but as earnest work, and no human being can attain to the Christian standard without this. When Jesus Christ took a towel and girded himself, poured water into a basin, and washed his disciples' feet, he performed a significant and sacramental act, which no man or woman should ever forget. If wealth and rank and power absolve from the services of life, then certainly were Jesus Christ absolved, as he says, Ye call me Master and Lord. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Let a man who seeks to make a terrestrial paradise for the woman of his heart to absolve her from all care, from all labor, to teach her to accept and to receive the labor of others without any attempt to offer labor in return, consider whether he is not thus going directly against the fundamental idea of Christianity, taking the direct way to make his idols selfish and exacting, to rob her of the highest and noblest beauty of womanhood. In that chapter of the Bible where the relation between man and woman is stated, it is thus said, with quaint simplicity, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. Woman, the helper of man, not his toy, not a picture, 
not a statue, not a work of art, but a helper, a doer. Such is the view of the Bible and the Christian religion. It is not necessary that women should work physically or morally to an extent which impairs beauty. In France, where woman is harnessed with an ass to the plow which her husband drives, where she digs and wheels the pickaxe, she becomes prematurely hideous. But in America, where woman reigns as queen in every household, she may surely be a good and thoughtful housekeeper. She may have physical strength exercised in lighter domestic toils, not only without injuring her beauty, but with manifest advantage to it. Almost every growing young girl would be better in health, and therefore handsomer, for two hours of active housework daily, and the habit of usefulness thereby gained would be an equal advantage to her moral development. The labors of modern, well-arranged houses are not in any sense severe. They are as gentle as any kind of exercise that can be devised, and they bring into play muscles that ought to be exercised to be healthily developed. The great danger to the beauty of American woman does not lie, as the writer of the Post contends, in an overworking of the physical system which shall stunt and deform. On the contrary, American women of the comfortable classes are in danger of a loss of physical beauty from the entire deterioration of the muscular system for want of exercise. Take the life of any American girl in one of our large towns and see what it is. We have an educational system of public schools, which for intellectual culture is a just matter of pride in any country. From the time that the girl is seven years old, her first thought when she rises in the morning is to eat her breakfast and be off to her school. There really is no more time than enough to allow her to make that complete toilette, which every well-bred female ought to make, and to take her morning meals before her school begins. She returns at noon with just time to eat her dinner, and the afternoon session begins. She comes home at night with books, slate, and lessons enough to occupy her evening. What time is there for teaching her any household work, for teaching her to cut or fit or sew, or to inspire her with any taste for domestic duties? Her arms have no exercise, her chest and lungs and all the complex systems of muscles which are to be perfected by quick and active movement are compressed while she bends over book and slate and drawing board while the ever-active brain is kept all the while going at the top of its speed. She grows up spare, thin, and delicate, and while the Irish girl, who sweeps the parlors, rubs the silver, and irons the muslins, is developing a finely rounded arm and bust, the American girl has a pair of bones at her sides, and a bust composed of cotton padding, the work of a skillful dressmaker. Nature, who is no respecter of persons, gives to Colleen Vaughan who use her arms and chest, a beauty which perishes in the gentle, languid Edith, who does nothing but study and read. But is it not a fact, said Rudolph, as stated by our friend of the post, that American matrons are perishing, and that their beauty and grace all withered from overwork? It is, said my wife, but why? It is because they are brought up without vigor or muscular strength without the least practical experience of household labor, or those means of saving it which come by daily practice. And then, after marriage, when physically weakened by maternity, embarrassed by the care of young children, 
they are often suddenly deserted by every efficient servant and the whole machinery of a complicated household left in their weak inexperienced hands in the country you see a household perhaps made void some fine morning by biddy's sudden departure and nobody to make the bread or cook the steak or sweep the parlors or do one of the complicated offices of a family and no bakery cook-shop or laundry to turn to for alleviation a lovely refined home becomes in a few hours a howling desolation and then ensues a long season of breakage waste distraction as one wild irish immigrant after another introduces the style of irish cottage life into an elegant dwelling now suppose i grant to the evening post that woman ought to rest to be kept in the garden of life and all that how is this to be done in a country where a state of things like this is the commonest of occurrences and is it any kindness or reverence to woman to educate her for such an inevitable destiny by a life of complete physical delicacy and incapacity many a woman who has been brought into these cruel circumstances would willingly exchange all her knowledge of german and italian and all her graceful accomplishments for a good physical development and some respectable savoir-faire in ordinary life moreover american matrons are overworked because some unaccountable glamour leads them to continue to bring up their girls in the same inefficient physical habits which resulted in so much misery to themselves housework as they are obliged to do it untrained untaught exhausted and in company with rude dirty unkempt foreigners seems to them a degradation which they will spare to their daughters the daughter goes on with her schools and accomplishments and leads in the family the life of an elegant little visitor during all those years when a young girl might be gradually developing and strengthening her muscles in healthy household work it never occurs to her that she can or ought to fill any of the domestic gaps into which her mother always steps and she comforts herself with the thought i don't know how i can't i haven't the strength i can't sweep it blisters my hands if i should stand at the ironing table an hour i should be ill for a week as to cooking i don't know anything about it and so when the cook or the chambermaid or nurse or all together vacate the premises it is the mamma who is successively cook and chambermaid and nurse and this is the reason why matrons fade and are overworked now mr rudolph do you think a woman any less beautiful or interesting because she is a fully developed physical being because her muscles have been rounded and matured into strength so that she can meet the inevitable emergencies of life without feeling them to be distressing hardships if there be a competent well-trained servant to sweep and dust the parlor and keep all the machinery of the house in motion she may very properly select her work out of the family in some work of benevolent helpfulness but when the inevitable evil hour comes which is likely to come first or last in every american household is a woman any less an elegant woman because of her love of neatness order and beauty leads her to make vigorous personal exertions to keep her own home undefiled for my part i think a disorderly ill-kept home a sordid uninviting table has driven more husbands from domestic life than the unattractiveness of any overworked woman so long as a woman makes her home harmonious and orderly so long as the hour of assembling around the family table is something to be looked forward to as comfort and a refreshment man cannot see that the good house fairy 
who by some magic keeps everything so delightfully, has either a wrinkle or a gray hair. Besides, said I, I must tell you, Rudolph, what you fellows of twenty-one are slow to believe, and that is that the kind of ideal paradise you propose in marriage is, in the very nature of things, an impossibility, that the familiarities of everyday life between two people who keep house together must and will destroy it. Suppose you are married to Cytheria herself, and the next week attacked with a rheumatic fever. If the tie between you is that of true and honest love, Cytheria will put on a gingham wrapper, and with her own sculptured hands wring out the flannels which shall relieve your pains, and she will be no true woman if she does not prefer to do this to employing any nurse that could be hired. True love ennobles and dignifies the material labors of life, and homely services rendered for love's sake have in them a poetry that is immortal. No true-hearted woman can find herself in real, actual life, unskilled and unfit to minister to the wants and sorrows of those dearest to her, without a secret sense of degradation. The feeling of uselessness is an extremely unpleasant one. Tom Hood, in a very humorous paper, describes a most accomplished schoolmistress, a teacher of all the arts and crafts which are supposed to make up fine gentlewomen, who is stranded in a rude German inn, with her father writhing in the anguish of a severe attack of gastric inflammation. The helpless lady gazes on her suffering parent, longing to help him, and thinking over all her various little store of accomplishments, not one of which bears the remotest relation to the case. She could knit him a bead purse, or make him a guard chain, or work him a footstool, or festoon him with cut tissue paper, or sketch his likeness, or crust him over with alum crystals, or stick him over with little rosettes of red and white wafers. But none of these being applicable to his present case, she sits gazing in resigned imbecility, till finally she desperately resolves to improvise some gruel, and after a laborious turn in the kitchen, after burning her dress and blacking her fingers, succeeds only in bringing him a bowl of paste. Not unlike this might be the feeling of many an elegant and accomplished woman, whose education has taught and practiced her in everything that a woman ought to know, except those identical ones which fit her for the care of a home, for the comfort of a sick-room. And so I say again, that whatever a woman may be in the way of beauty and elegance, she must have the strength and skill of a practical worker, or she is nothing. She is not simply to be beautiful, she is to make the beautiful, and preserve it, and she who makes and she who keeps the beautiful must be able to work, and know how to work. Whatever offices of life are performed by women of culture and refinement are thenceforth elevated. They cease to be mere servile toils, and become expressions of the ideas of superior beings. If a true lady makes even a plate of toast in arranging a petit soupois for her invalid friend, she does it as a lady should. She does not cut blundering and uneven slices. She does not burn the edges. She does not deluge it with bad butter and serve it cold. But she arranges it and serves it all with an artistic care, with a nicety and a delicacy, which makes it worth one's while to have a lady friend in sickness. And I am glad to hear that Monsieur Blot 
is teaching classes of new york ladies that cooking is not a vulgar kitchen toil to be left to blundering servants but an elegant feminine accomplishment better worth a woman's learning than crochet or embroidery and that a well-kept culinary apartment may be so inviting and orderly that no lady need feel her ladyhood compromised by participating in its pleasant toils i am glad to know that his cooking academy is thronged with more scholars than he can accommodate and from ladies in the best classes of society moreover i am glad to see that in new bedford recently a public course of instruction in the art of bread-making has been commenced by a lady and that classes of the most respectable young and married ladies in the place are attending them these are steps in the right direction and show that our fair countrywomen with the grand good sense which is their leading characteristic are resolved to supply whatever in our national life is wanting i do not fear that women of such sense and energy will listen to the sophistries which would persuade them that elegant imbecility and inefficiency are charms of cultivated womanhood or ingredients in the poetry of life she alone can keep the poetry and beauty of married life who has this poetry in her soul who with energy and discretion can throw back and out of sight the sordid and disagreeable details which beset all human living and can keep in the foreground that which is agreeable who has enough knowledge of practical household matters to make unskilled and rude hands minister to her cultivated and refined taste and constitute her skilled brain the guide of unskilled hands from such a home with such a mistress no sirens will seduce a man even though the hair grow gray and the merely physical charms of early days gradually pass away the enchantment that was about her person alone in the days of courtship seems in the course of years to have interfused and penetrated the home which she has created and which in every detail is only an expression of her personality her thoughts her plans her provident care are everywhere and the home attracts and holds by a thousand ties the heart which before marriage was held by the woman alone end of chapter four is woman a worker